I taught this psalm about eight months ago. Um, I taught it at a youth camp, and it was one of kind of the assigned studies for me, talking about fear. And, and so this week I listened to it, and I was like, okay, what are some things that I can glean from that as I seek to teach it again? And, and what was interesting as I listened to it, I was almost listening to somebody else. Um, and, and the reason why is a lot's changed in eight months. You know, many things happen in the last eight months. And so who I was eight months ago is not who I am today. I'm different than I was then. And so I thought, well, I'm going to come at this psalm from a different angle that I did back then. But also, as I was reminded of how much I've changed in the last eight months, I was reminded that the Lord Jesus hasn't changed, that he's still the same. In fact, we read in Hebrews 13, 8, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and he's the same today and he's the same forever. And so we change, but Jesus doesn't. And, but what happens though, see, when he stays the same, and we sang about that, about how our God is unchanging, he stays the same, but we change. What happens is we begin to see him differently. And so it should be that as we're growing, that we kind of look back at eight months or a year or five years or 10 years and say, I see the Lord a lot differently than I did back then. And I was reminded of this as I went through Prince Caspian not too long ago, one of the Chronicles of Narnia books. And so what happens, Aslan, who represents Christ, he shows up to Lucy, uh, the, the youngest of this family of four that meet up with Aslan there in Narnia. And so I want to read just a brief passage. Aslan said, Lucy, you're bigger. And he said, that is because you are older, little one. And then she says, not because you are. He says, I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. And that's the reality of the situation, that as we grow in the Lord, we're going to see him to be bigger and bigger and bigger. The, the more that we see of him, the greater that he is. And so that's how it happens. Now, alongside of that, as he gets bigger in our eyes, as we get to know him better, then we're going to see aspects of him that really go against our sinfulness. We're going to see elements in him that really grind off those sinful tendencies in us as we see him get bigger and bigger in our eyes, then our idols will get crushed by the weight of him. And so it's important for us to come to grips with that, especially when we come to something like Psalm 23, because Psalm 23 is one of those psalms where it's easy to memorize, probably the most memorized portion of Scripture it's easy to kind of just make it rote, but I would encourage you to maybe see some new things today, to see the Lord a little bit differently as we move through this psalm. So Psalm 23, notice the title, very simple, a psalm of David. I'll read it for you and then we'll go through it. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, I made some people nervous last week about what he's going to get through the psalm. And I'm going to make you nervous again this week because I'm going to spend so much time in the first couple of verses, but I assure you we'll get through it in a reasonable amount of time. You guys have the advantage. There's another service after you, so I can't hold you forever. And so also remember that you're free moral agents. At any time, you could just always walk out. Uh, you don't have to stay. 
So Psalm 23, we'll start with verse 1, and we see the Lord. Now, that's in all caps, L-O-R-D. That's signifying to us that it's Yahweh. It's the covenant name of God. I just want to camp on this for just a minute because we sang a song about God being the I am. And that's what it really means is Yahweh, that he is the great I am. When Moses saw the Lord there at the burning bush, Exodus chapter three, he says, who shall I say sent you? He says, I am. Tell him that I am sent you. I am that I am. Speaking of God's self-existent, why is that important? Because so much of this psalm is built upon the fact that we need God, that we need something from him, that he's our provider, that he's our guide, that he's our protector, he's all of these things. But what happens for us is sometimes we take our own deficiencies and transfer them or project them to God. Well, I'm deficient, so he must be deficient. Well, I don't know all things, so he must not know all things. Well, I can't figure out how this thing's going to go down in the world stage right now, so he must not know how the world stage is going to go down. That's not true. What we're going to see here, and I hope to display to you in kind of my own ineptitude, somehow get it across to you and to I, that God's way different from us. He's way different. And so he's a self-existent one. Please hear me. He is not dependent on anyone or anything. As Yahweh... The great I am, he is not dependent on anyone or anything. He's not dependent upon you to make sure the world gets saved. Sometimes it's kind of portrayed like that, that we're going to get to heaven and stand before Jesus. And Jesus is going to say to us, you know what? I was really going to save more people, but you didn't do your job evangelizing. There was that lady at HEB that, that you were the only hope. <laughs> That's not how it works. God is in desperate straits if he's depending upon us, if he needs something from us. No, no, God invites us to be used in his process and what he's doing, but he is a self-existent one. He doesn't need us. The triune God is a relationship within itself. So even though he wants to have relationship with us, he doesn't need us to have relationship. And so that should bring great comfort to you and I. God has everything he needs to do whatever it is in his nature to do. So please understand, that doesn't mean that God can do anything. Sometimes people say God can do anything. God can't do anything. God can't lie. God can't sin. God can't not be God. God can't create another God because God is uncreated. So anything that's in his nature to do, he can do. And, and he will do according to his good pleasure. And that's very, very important. See, the triune God is independent and we are dependent. For us to live every day, we're dependent on so many things. We're dependent on air. We're dependent on water. We're dependent upon food. We're dependent on shelter. We're dependent upon, you know, relationship with others. All of those things, God's not. Okay? So when you turn on the TV and there's some pastor on TV telling you, you know, God's work can't go on unless you just give to him. Don't buy it. God's not dependent upon us. And so, so many things must be just right for us to function in this world, but not so for him. God is always functioning at the highest possible level. God always has it under control. And that's important for us, especially right now as we kind of look what's going on. You don't have to spend too much time researching what's happening in the world and plans people are making before you say, oh, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. But God does. And so remember, God is not limited because you are, right? Beware for you and I of projecting our limitations onto him. God is not limited like we are. So the Lord, the self-existent one, the one who needs nothing from anyone, 
who he has chosen, notice, to be our shepherd. So David says, the Lord is my shepherd. So as believers, we have a personal relationship with our shepherd. And that's important, okay? This is not, this is not like, God's not your insurance agent, right? You don't often have a personal relationship with your insurance agent. You, you pay these dues, and if something bad happens, you interact with them, and hopefully they're going to cover whatever happened. But that's not a personal relationship. And so God's not our insurance agent. He's not any of these things that's kind of, you know, a contingent. If, if I need him, well, he'll be there. No, God is someone that we have personal relationship. Now, I love this word my here because oftentimes we get after kids, and rightly so, because it seems like the first, kid, the first word kids learn is mine. Mine. And it's usually in a negative way, right? That I, I want this, and it's a, it's a competitive way. I have this thing, so now you don't have this thing. That's what it is. And so it reminds me of, you know, kind of how we are. There was this pastor, and he talked about when his two daughters were little, and he went to the store, and he bought them the exact same ball. I don't know if you guys, they do it anymore at stores, but they used to have kind of these big, like, containers, and all these big plastic balls were in there, and you could take them. So he bought the exact same one for both daughters, and he thought, well, this will be great. And so they asked the first daughter, which one do you want? She looked at both balls and she looked at her sister. She said, I want the one she wants. <laughs> that was her attitude. And so sometimes that's kind of how we view mine. When it comes to you saying God is my God, this is a good thing. Because there's two ways to think about this. Number one, he's my shepherd and that he possesses us. Okay, he's, I'm, I'm his possession. And then only after he possesses us, then we possess him. So God is my shepherd in the sense that I am his sheep. Okay, he possesses me, but also, and he is my shepherd, I possess him. Please remember that. He is the initiator and that we're the responder in every relationship. Sometimes we can kind of get into this idea, you know, kind of some sayings that we have in Christianity, like I found Jesus. And then the good response is, I didn't know he was lost, right? We, none of us found Jesus. Jesus found us. We were the lost ones. He came looking for us. And that's important because if we think that we're the initiator and he's the responder, then what happens is any kind of relationship that you initiate, another person has to respond, then at some point they may be not interested anymore. But not so with Jesus. Jesus initiates and then we respond to him. And so that's important. I was talking with Pastor Dan, one of my good friends, one of my oldest and closest friends, and we're talking about this and kind of this mentality that we have with Jesus that, you know, we're gonna get to heaven and there's gonna be so many people that wanna see Jesus. We're like, I don't know when I'm gonna get to it. It's eternity, I'll see him eventually, right? And there's all these kind of people throughout human history that are more deserving of seeing him than we are. So we're just in line behind him. And the pastor Dan said, you know, that's, that's a wrong type of thinking. What's going to happen is it's not, we're going to wait to see Jesus. Jesus is going to come see us. Jesus is going to come find us out because that's how it is, right? Jesus initiates, we respond. In the picture of the bride and the groom, we're the bride, right? Jesus proposed to us. Jesus asked us to enter into relationship with him. And so remember, as you think about Jesus being your shepherd, he sought you out. It wasn't that you made yourself so nice and you kind of, you know, cleaned up the wool on your back and you made yourself real pretty. And uh, when Jesus walks by, he's just going to want me. No, Jesus sought us out. And so he's our shepherd because he came and he found us. Now, 
One of the songs that we sing goes like this. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. Okay, so this is different. Now, when we begin to think about this, the Lord is my shepherd in the sense of he sought me out, he initiated a relationship, he drew me near. This should change everything for us if we really take it to heart. Because now it's every day when I wake up, no matter if I feel good about life, I feel horrible about life, whatever else, is I realize, okay, I'm Jesus's sheep because he wanted me to be his sheep. I'm in relationship with Jesus because he wanted me to be in relationship with him. And then let's do the math. He's the same yesterday and today and forever. So if he wanted to be in relationship with me back then, the day that he saved me, and he knows who I'm going to be, well, that means he still wants to have relationship with me today. And he still wants to be my shepherd today and every day. So it's not that he ever wants to stop being our shepherd. It's that so often we're wayward sheep. Now, let's look at this word shepherd for just a minute. Who, what is a shepherd? Was one who cares for the needs of the sheep. One who does what's in the best interest of the sheep. That's what a shepherd is concerned with. That's what a shepherd is going for. And so there's an important point here that this picture of Jesus being a shepherd is a very intimate picture. You see, there's a lot of ways that we can picture Jesus and and they're biblical examples. You know, God is our rock or God is our king or God is all these different things. He's a shield, he's a fortress. And all of those things to one way or another can appear impersonal. But a shepherd can't be impersonal. A shepherd has to be right up there with the sheep. You can't be a shepherd at a distance. You just can't. In order to be a shepherd, you have to be near. You must be near the sheep. And so Jesus says these things. Jesus tells us he's going to remain near. Let me give you a few verses to remind you of this. John 14, verse 23. Jesus says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. It's an often overlooked verse because there's so many things that happen near the end of John that we're just like, we can be overwhelmed, right? It's kind of like if you go to a buffet and it's all kinds of stuff that you like and like, where do I begin? (laughs) There's so many things. That's how the end of John's gospel is. You get to the upper room discourse and all of a sudden, so much. Look at this verse, though, again, John 14, 23. If anyone loves me, okay, that's a believer, right? He will keep my word, that, that that's, as we show we, that we love Jesus by obeying him. And then he says, and my father will love him, and we, so that's father and son, will come to him and make our home with him. So let's do the math. He's saying that anyone who's a believer, then the, the father and the son will both live with him. And then we also know from the New Testament that the Holy Spirit will come and indwell us, So somehow, in a way I can't understand, the triune God desires and is willing and will make relationship with us. I mean, I don't know how much closer you can get to God than the triune God dwelling with you. It's an incredible thing Jesus says. Then Jesus, when he gives the great commission in Matthew chapter 28, he doesn't say, hey guys, go out there and get it done. Y'all work hard. I trained you, now just do what I said. No, it says in Matthew 28, 20, and I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So he says, get out there and do it. But guess what? I'm gonna be with you. I'm gonna help you do that thing. Whether or not you feel like it, whether or not you feel like I'm near, I'm near. I'm there with you and I'm gonna be with you until the end. And then Hebrews 13, verses five and six 
We read these words, let your conduct be without covetousness, be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So the author of Hebrews is is saying to people, saying to believers, hey, we don't have to covet stuff. We don't have to want things. We don't have to want this and that and the other. Why? Because we already have God. We have have God with us. And so what can man do to us? What more do we need? Now, as the sheep, sorry, as as sheep of the unchanging shepherd, then remember that you're owned by the Lord. Okay. So anything that the Lord owns, the Lord is going to hold on to. Okay. Anything that the Lord owns, the Lord's going to hold on to. And so I want to remind you, uh, I talked about this last week of the two reasons why you have value. They have nothing to do with you. Okay. They have nothing to do with me. The two reasons we have value are also the two ways that we're owned by the Lord. Number one, God created us. God created us in his image, so therefore we belong to him. And then Jesus purchased us by his blood, so we belong to him. I've said it before, and I I tell it at school, but I love to tell the story of a little boy who built a toy boat, and there was a rainstorm, and so he went out sailing that little boat, and it got lost to him downstream. And so he was heartbroken about this boat. One day, he goes by a thrift store, and there in the window is his boat. He goes and he tries to convince the, the owner of the store that it's his boat. The guy doesn't buy it. So he saves up his money, goes back and buys that boat. And as he walks home, he says, boat, you're mine twice. I made you and now I bought you. And that's exactly what the Lord does with us, right? We're the Lord's twice. He made us and he bought us. So how will he not be near us? Acts 20 verse 28 Paul said this to the Ephesian elders. He says, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Jesus purchased us as sheep with his own blood. Now, see, the fact that God created us in his image and that he purchased us by his blood should give us confidence. Should give us confidence that Jesus doesn't just waste things that Jesus is going to bring us home to the end. Now, so the Lord is my shepherd. Continuing on to verse one, he says, I shall not want, or it could be translated, I will not lack. Now, what's very interesting about this, because we, we sing about this and we can sing about it and we can repeat it, you know, is to ask ourselves, do we really believe it? Because what we have here with this, I shall not want or I will not lack, it's both a declaration and a decision. It's a declaration and a decision. And I want to go into that for just a moment. First of all, it's a declaration. Saying, all my needs are supplied by the Lord, my shepherd. That's a declaration. So you can declare today and say, all of my needs are supplied by the Lord, my shepherd. And then the decision is, I decide to not desire more than what the Lord, my shepherd gives. So the decision is, I decide not to desire more than what the Lord, my shepherd, gives. Now, here's where it's going to get dicey, and here's where you're going to maybe look me up after service, because I'm I'm going to kind of talk about this kind of wants versus needs, and maybe look at it in a different way than you've looked at it before because of what the Lord's been working in my own life. And so we often have this kind of, you know, needs versus greeds, okay? We have these certain needs, and then these are greeds, and we understand that right? Lord, I really need a lotus. 
you know, I just, I really think, I think it's just kind of energy efficient. I want to kind of help the environment. I think a lotus would be great for me. We don't need a lotus, all right? And so we, we think about that's, that's a common one. But other things that we may be, view as needs are actually simply wants. And so I want to kind of um, get, uh, get into this idea by turning to Philippians chapter 4. Would you turn to Philippians chapter 4 for just a moment? I asked my students the other day in class, I said, what is the most quoted verse by athletes? And they knew immediately. Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But then when I asked my students, you know, as I asked most people, what's the context for that? Well, they didn't have any idea, and that's, that's okay. So we talked about that. So we're going to talk about that verse for just a minute. But I don't look at the context, and so we're, we're thinking about needs versus wants. Philippians 4, 13, I'm sorry, Philippians 4, verses 10, verses 10 through 13. So Paul writes, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. And so what, what he's saying here, what, what Paul is saying is he's thanking the church there in Philippi because they provided for him. They provided for him financially. Okay. At this time, Paul's under house arrest. And so he, they provided for him. And he says, thanks for that. Thanks for, for helping me out. And then he says in verse 11, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Huh. So it's not about dunking a basketball. <laughs> it's actually about learning how to be content in whatever state you're in. So he said, Paul says there's sometimes when I've got a lot, I'm abounding physically, you know, maybe you got, you know, clothes and money and all of these things. He says, that's great. It's awesome. I know, I know how to, to do well in that circumstance. But he says also, I know how to be hungry. I know how to suffer need. I know matter what situation I'm in to keep on doing what God called me to do. Now, what's often overlooked in, in verses 11 and 12, notice that phrase, I have learned. This isn't natural for us. It's not natural for us to be content because everything in our fallen nature kind of is discontent. And then everything in this world system is teaching us to be discontent. And so what has to happen is we actually have to learn. We actually have to learn how to handle abundance. We actually have to learn to handle it when we're being abased. But this idea here, the truth is, I want to think about is what do I truly need? Because Paul is saying when I'm being abased, when I'm hungry and all of those things, I've learned to be content, which means that we can actually be in, in a situation that the world looks at as needy and say, no, I'm okay with this. And so it's a radical thing. And so the, the question for us to ask ourselves and to ask us from the scriptures, what do we truly need? From a biblical standpoint, what do we truly need? What would be biblically defined as a need? I think this is a very important topic. And I think the first answer, our ultimate need is salvation from our sins. That's our ultimate need. The ultimate need of every person on planet Earth is salvation from their sins. That's the need, the number one need. And that salvation, thankfully, has already been provided for us at the cross. So if you're a believer, your number one need has already been met. Jesus Christ has already died for you. You've placed your faith in him and you've been born again by your spirit. Well, what other needs do we have? What are the needs that we have? I would argue we only have one other need. Only one. 
Our only other need is simply this. We need whatever it is that will allow us to accomplish the purpose of God in our lives. That's it. We only have two needs. Salvation from our sins and whatever it is that will allow us to accomplish the purpose God has for our lives. And that's a radical thing. That, that's, that's way different than how we commonly think about things because we think about, well, our needs are, I've got to make sure I have a good house and I've got to make sure I have a, a ride to work and I've got to make sure, you know, really, this is, just be radical. If, if God could receive glory from like starving us to death because he's going to reveal his glory through that, then we don't have a need for food. That this is, this is the kind of radical thing that the scriptures teach. And so for us, I believe wholeheartedly that our only needs are salvation from our sins and whatever it is that will allow us to accomplish the purpose of God in our lives. And so the question is, can we trust the unchanging shepherd to provide for those needs, whatever they may be? And I think the answer is yes. Now, but here's the hard truth. And this is where, maybe not for you, but this is where I get crossways with God so often. The reality is, I have no idea what my true needs are, but God does, right? For when it comes to this fact of whatever it is that I need to accomplish God's will, I may think I need things to be a certain way to accomplish God's will. And God says, no, (laughs) that's not what you need. But here's the deal. I have a strong inclination that you have no idea what exactly you need for, for, for God to do his work in your life. So where does that leave us? Where do we go from here? How do we handle this situation? If what I'm saying is biblically true, what next? Well, I'm glad you asked. Would you turn to Matthew chapter six? I believe Matthew six presents us with a key. And I believe that as... You know, the times around us grow darker. I believe that the Sermon on the Mount is going to be a place that we want to come back to over and over again in the scriptures. It's going to be really helpful for us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who lived under the Nazi regime, sought to fight against it, really based his kind of life and ministry on trying to seek to living out the Sermon on the Mount. And so Matthew chapter 6, I believe that we have the key to understand how we interact with God related to our needs. Matthew 6 verses 5 through 13, Jesus says, and when you pray, you should not be like the hypocrites for they love to pray standing in the synagogues on the corners of the streets that they may be seen uh, by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room. And when you have shut your door, pray to your father who is in the secret place. And your father who sees in secret will will reward you openly. When you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do. For they think they will be heard for their many words. And then here it is. I believe this is the key verse in verse 8. Therefore, do not be like them. For your father, here it is, knows the things you have need of before you ask him. God knows what you need. God knows the things that you have need of before you ask him. And so then Jesus continues on and says, in this manner, therefore pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I would argue that in some senses, praying less is actually greater faith. In other words, instead of having this list of like all these line item details of all of these things that the Lord needs to do so that we can accomplish this work is to say, Lord, 
I'm going to pray this prayer. You know what I have need of. Would you give me whatever I need? I'm going to trust you with that. And then would you help me to learn to be content when things don't turn out the way that I want them, when I don't get the things that, that I think that I need? I can trust you, Father, that you know what I have need of and you are fully able to provide for those needs. That's radical. This is something different. This is kind of going beyond kind of the, the normal Christian thing. You won't find a lot of Christian books that say things like this. But I believe that this is the truth of the scriptures, that for you and I to come to grips with verse eight over and over again and say, okay, my father, Jesus tells me that my father knows the things I have need of before I ask him. So I'm just gonna ask him to give those things to me that he knows I need. I'm gonna trust him in that and then let him work himself, his, his kind of agenda through my life. All right, let's turn back to Psalm 23 as we move into verse two. Back to Psalm 23. And he says, he makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. Now, when I taught this at youth camp, I had some questions afterwards because kids were confused about he makes me to lie down. You know, like Jesus is just kind of punching these sheep and lie down, sheep. You know, they, he's choke holding them or something. And the kids were confused about that. And that's not what it means. He makes me to lie down. Oh, another way it could be translated is he enables me to lie down. He gives me rest right? Some of us have a hard time resting. Some of us are just like, oh, we've got to be doing stuff and I got to be busy and I got to get this thing done. If I don't get it done, it's not going to get done and, and all of this. But the, the good shepherd, he, he enables us to lie down. He says, take a break. You know, he, Jesus set the example. Jesus took naps. <laughs> and so it's important for us to realize that when the good shepherd will cause us to lie down, but where and he leaves me beside the still waters. And, but I want to tie it together here where he, lies me, he makes me to lie down in green pastures. Uh, these green pastures means pastures of tender grass. Okay, so in other words, it's, it's a field where the sheep can feed on. It's kind of the, the idea is that sheep are eating as much as they want and then they can rest after eating their fill. So spiritually speaking, Right. What, what did Paul talk about? Paul says, you know, that basically the more that I know the Lord, the more I want to know the Lord, that I'm, I'm just seeking him. I'm desiring him. I'm, I'm feasting on him. So it's that idea because we kind of think that this means, you know, he he makes me to lie down in green pastures. It's that he gives me all these physical things I want. And now I can relax because I have all these physical things. And I think that there's a certain aspect to that where he provides with our physical needs. But I think it's also this idea that we can feed on him, that we can have as much of him as we desire, and then we can rest in that knowledge of relationship with him. John chapter 10, verse nine, Jesus said, if anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture so that there's freedom there, right? What does Paul say in Romans? That sin brings bondage but that when you believe, then you're set free from that bondage. So I love this picture of that when we're, you know, the sheep of the shepherd, that there's actually freedom there. There's pasture there. And then he says in the next verse, John 10, 10, he says, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Jesus came to give us an abundant life, a life that's found in him, not a life that's easy, you know, not a life that's all, you know, lemonade and lazy boys, but a life that's fruitful, a life that's meaningful, a life that's fulfilling in him. And it says, he leaves me beside the still waters. It's kind of this idea of waters of rest. 
that it's not raging rapids, that it's, it's a, more like a babbling brook. And so this idea of these still waters, it's the idea of rest or home or security or quiet. It's that, that there's fulfillment there, that, that there's, there's water to drink. There's the refreshing of the soul that takes place. Verse three, he says, he restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Okay, so this restoring of the soul is very important. You know, you kind of think about there are certain products that you can't do home repairs on. You know, and, and a lot of times they do that on purpose, right? They want you to send it back to them. And so a specialist will have to work on it. But as things get more complicated, then what happens is they need to be fixed by the person who created it. Well, same thing with the soul. You see, our soul was created by God. You and I didn't make our soul, but what happened is you and I have formed our souls. You and I have formed our souls by the things we've exposed ourselves to, by the things we've believed, by the things we've pursued. And so what happens over time, it's kind of like when you take, give a teenager a car, they bang it around, right? So we've done the same thing with our souls. And so we need restoration of that soul. If we were to look at our souls, sometimes they, they look like that old beat up car that's in the junkyard. And what happens is we need to take it back to the one who made it because he knows how to repair it. God is the one who restores our soul. Binging Netflix will not restore our soul. Okay? You know, Oprah can't restore your soul and political parties can't restore your soul. And and watching about all the bad news happening on the world will not restore your soul. But to restore your, soul, restore your soul, what you'll have to do is you'll have to actually come into God's shop, if you will, right? So if you think about your soul as a beat up car, you got to bring it to the shop. You got to spend time with him. And then as you spend time with the Lord, he will bring soul restoration to you. He, he's got to spend time in his presence. And then you can not only have to submit time to spend time in his presence, you actually have to submit your soul to restoration. You and I have seen this. You and I have tried to share truth with someone and they were resistant. You, you've seen it, right? You, you try to share truth with someone or maybe you were that person. You know, your algebra teacher was just trying to help you learn and you just weren't going to do it. And you were hardened to it. So it doesn't do any good for you and I to open our Bible and to kind of read through it. But all the while, our soul has its arms crossed. What we have to do is we have to be open and say, Lord, do the soul surgery. Do whatever you need to do on me because I know that whatever you do is good. Now, continuing on, he says, he restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Now this word leads here, okay, it's, it's really speaks of an invitation to follow. Okay, please understand that. It's an invitation to follow. The, the reason why the world is so messed up, one of the main reasons, is because God refuses to just make people do what he wants them to do. It's just not how he works. That's not who he is. He invites people. And so because he invites people, then people refuse that invitation and people do whatever they want to do instead. And so for you and I, we want to respond to that invitation. It's interesting, kind of by my account, I was, I was kind of looking through the Gospels and I found, doing a little word search, that 22 times in the Gospels, Jesus invites people to follow. 22 times in the Gospels, Jesus invites people to follow. So I want to turn to one of those places. Would you turn to John chapter 10 for just a moment? John chapter 10. 
And look at verses 24 through 30. So here's this chapter, the great chapter of Jesus referring to himself as a shepherd. We won't have time to get into all of it today. But John chapter 10, I want to start in verse 24. And so it says, then the Jews, those are the religious leaders, they surrounded him and said to him, how long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, you do not believe the works that I do in my father's name. They bear witness of me, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. As I said to you, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and my father are one. So what did Jesus's sheep do? They follow him. They go after him. They pursue him. And that's an exciting thing because Jesus says anyone who's my sheep, not only do they know me, but guess what? I'm the one holding on to them. I'm the one making sure they stay a part of the flock. And not only that, he says, my father who's given to me is greater than all and no one's gonna able to snatch him out of my father's hand. My father and I are one. So here's the imagery. For you as a sheep, no matter how you might feel today, no matter kind of where you are, if you're a born again believer, Jesus is holding on to you and God the father is holding on to you. And no one, I mean, no one can snatch you out of the father's hand and out of the son's hand. It just can't happen. And so this is an incredible privilege that we have as these believers, as those who follow after Jesus Christ. Now, as we turn back to Psalm 23, let's look at the rest of that verse here where it says, he leads me, so invites us to follow, where? In the paths of righteousness. In other words, in the right way to go. So Jesus leads us in the right way to go. Ephesians chapter two, verse 10 says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So you and I, please understand, have a certain race to run. It's, talk, it's oftentimes in the scripture, it's called the course. You know, it talks about John the Baptist when he was finishing his course. Uh, Paul talks about how he's finished his race. So you and I have an individual race. Here's the problem. Your race is different from somebody else's race. So you might look at their race and say, well, their race looks a lot better. You know, their race isn't in the Permian Basin. Uh, you know, their race is somewhere different. And so, but for you and I is to realize that this path of righteousness that Jesus leads us on is the race that we're called to. And it says in Ephesians 2.10 that there are these specific good works God's called us to that we should walk in them. That we should walk them out so that we should do what he's asked us to do. Now, what is all this about? Why are we doing the whole thing? Notice at the end of verse three, for his name's sake. For his name's sake, okay. This is why our plan and God's plan often are at cross purposes because we want things to be for our sake, our namesake. That's what everybody wants, right? People want their names on buildings. They want their names to be remembered. They want future children to be named after them. They want to put the name on the back of their jersey. We want, we're obsessed with our name. And the interesting thing is, Jesus says he's going to give us a new name. Jesus says, your name is important, but in relationship to me, not in isolation from me. And so realizing that our lives are for his name's sake 
it tells us that our, my life is not about him. It's, I'm sorry, my life is not about me. It's about him. But here's the great irony. When I make my life about him, then my life becomes more important. My life becomes something of eternal value. And so there's no greater example of this than the Lord Jesus. And I want to give you a couple of examples of how the Lord Jesus lived this out, how he lived for his father's namesake. John 4, verse 34, Jesus says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And then in John 6, 38, Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And so here's the, here's the kicker of the scriptures. If Jesus, the greatest person who ever lived, didn't do his own will, then who am I to demand a will of my own? If Jesus Christ, the greatest person who ever lived, the only perfect person who ever lived, didn't do his own will, then who in the world am I to demand that my will is done, that I have my own path and my own will? You see, it's impossible to live a life that God views as successful if it is lived in your own name. Absolutely. That's, that's key to, to failure. Any life that is lived for self is going to ultimately be a failure. So if a believer lives a life for self, then what's going to happen is they're going to be in heaven because of Christ's finished work, but what they're going to, is going to be saved as through fire, the scripture says. But for you and I, if we say, I want to live a life that's valuable, then live it for his name's sake. I want to live a life that means something that has purpose. Well, then what's got to happen is, is Jesus tells us, you got to get out of the way. You got to let me live through you. And now your life is going to be meaningful. Verse four says, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you're with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So for the first time here in the Psalm, it turns a little dark, right? It's the first dark turn in the Psalm. And so we have this valley of the shadow of death, a valley, you know, it's a place where a person might feel hedged in. They might feel surrounded, I think about John the Baptist that we talked about last week when he was in prison, you know, and he must have felt like it's that valley of the shadow of death. And so this shadow of death is interesting. It's the shadow of death. It's not death itself. So it's this idea of kind of the threat of death, perhaps. So in some sense, so we have to realize all of life in some sense is lived in the valley of the shadow of death. Death is always a specter over this fallen life, right? People that we love could die at any time. That's life in a fallen world. But notice what the scripture tells us as believers that we're going to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. That this life is a walking through it. For the believer, death is not a destination. Death is a doorway. Death is not a destination. Death is a doorway that we're going to walk through. And so because of that, because Jesus says, you know, the, the one who lives and believes in me will never die, that the fact of the matter is that, that death won't touch them in a, in a way it touches an unbeliever. It's not going to be a separation, but it's going to be a reunion. Then what happens is there's a choice here. Notice what D David says. He says, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, what will he do? I will fear no evil. That's a choice. He's making a choice to fear no evil. How is this possible? It's only possible if we fear God and not man. That's the only way to make this choice. And we're, we read in 1 John 4, verses 18 and 19, that there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves torment, but he who fears has not been made perfect in love. And then John says this, we love him because he first loved us. Okay, so he's saying we don't have to fear because God's love for us is perfect. His will for us is always good. 
And just a reminder, the only reason you love him is because he loved you first. And that makes all the difference. Now, continuing on there in verse four, he says, I will fear no evil for you are with me. This could be translated, and I prefer this. It could be translated, you are ever with me or you are always with me. God's presence casts out fear. We don't have to recount this because we've already talked about this earlier, that God is always with the believer. And then he says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And so I talked about that more the last time I taught this. You can look that up online. But essentially what it's talking about here is this comprehensive protection from any danger. That in any danger, that, that God was going to be able to comprehensively protect us um, so that we make it to heaven. So even if that danger takes our life, that danger will usher us into his presence. Verse 5 it says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. And so the way I look at this here and kind of application for us is that we can have fellowship with God in the midst of a hostile world. That's how I look at this. This is, I think, a great application. As we look at the world around us, the, the word here, a table, it really speaks of a banquet. And so as we look at kind of, again, things get dark and there's a threat of like economic problems and all these issues and enemies abound and like, oh, what's going on? Is you and I can sit down with our Bible in a darkened room, you know, maybe a little bit light because we have our Bible with us and we can actually have a table there in the midst of the enemies of this world. We can have a banquet with our Lord that, that as long as we are here, the Lord will meet us here and have a relationship with us. And he says, you anoint my head with oil. I believe that's symbolic of choosing. You know, the high priest was chosen, anointed with oil. The king was chosen, anointed with oil. It's also symbolic of the giving of the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit um, to help draw us into closer relationship with God. And then he says, my cup runs over. This speaks of abundant provision and I believe fullness of joy in the Lord's presence. That no matter what our circumstance is physically, that we can have an overflowing relationship with the Lord. Verse 6, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, that, that phrase, follow me there, uh, remember, it's, it's too weak of a translation. It really means to pursue as a predator pursues its prey. So God is actively going after us with his mercy and with his goodness. The problem is we don't often recognize it. We kind of have a real small category of what is good and what is merciful. God's category is different. His goodness and his mercy, oftentimes we don't recognize it till years later. It's a difficulty, it's a hardship, it's a loss. And in the moment we say, oh, why does God hate me? Why has he forsaken me? All of these things. Five years later, we realize, okay, now I see what he was doing. That was a goodness. That was mercy for me. And I love this phrase too in verse six. He says that it's going to happen all the days of my life, that God is pursuing us with his goodness and mercy every day. And then David says, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Could be translated in these days and in the days to come. That every day is a day that we can have relationship with the Lord. And so then forever, that's the ultimate desire. That's the ultimate fulfillment to be with the Lord there in heaven, the new heaven and the new earth and forever and ever and ever to be an unceasing relationship with the Lord. So these are some of the things that I got out of Psalm 23 this time through. And so I would encourage you to, to read through the scriptures, scriptures that you've read over and over and over and over again, and just see what is the Lord saying to me today? 
that the Lord hasn't changed, but I have. And so for, for you and I, kind of the question to wrap this up before we move into our time of communion is simply this. Are, are you willing to follow the unchanging shepherd? He's unchanging. His, his, his character is unchanging. His attributes are unchanging. His, his mission is unchanging. He's the same. But you know what? We get tired or we get frustrated or we get discouraged and all those kind of things. So, so sometimes it's more challenging to follow him than others. But are we willing to follow him in the midst of that, knowing that he's always good, that his way is always right? Because if you are willing to follow the unchanging shepherd, he is willing to lead you all the days of your life.